Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the Resilience Advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Over the past year, I've been working with the host of the Resilience Advantage series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, to draw upon the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields, such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Today, we are rounding out our 20-episode podcast series. I've had an incredible time learning about the field of resilience from so many different perspectives, coming from such knowledgeable sources, and taking you along on my journey. This has been the kind of education I don't think one could find in any one place, whether it be at school or even on the job. The Resilience Advantage program provides essential real-life and real-time knowledge that comes from years of experience and whole careers in the field. Coincidentally, the conclusion of the podcast is happening just as I am also concluding my education at Cal Poly Slow. I can't help but to see how these two platforms of study have complemented each other and prepared me for what comes next. My own future as a structural engineer. Before starting this podcast, it never occurred to me just how many different directions my path might take. I think that anyone who is pursuing a career in any of the many fields that are part of resilience should make a point of watching the 12 episodes of the Resilience Advantage program. And if you haven't listened to the 20 episodes of this podcast, I think you should go back and do that too. Not just because I'm your host, but because there are many questions answered or expanded upon that didn't quite make it to the final cut of the original program. I want to thank Evan Reese, the USRC, and Optimum Seismic for creating the Resilience Advantage and for giving me and you, our listeners, the opportunity to benefit from this rich resource. So now, we cap off the series with the very appropriately titled Episode 20, On to the Next Level. Moving to the next level isn't something that is only related to study or professional life. We're introduced to the anticipation and reward of moving up from when we're still young children. And we continue to grow by doing so, in so many different ways, even when we play video games. And it's not just kids. My mom has a game she plays on her phone, and she's always pushing to get to the next level. It's a big deal to her. This makes me think, in terms of my own interest in the structural engineering field, how can we move on to the next level? I'm not talking about playing a game here. How can we help make the future of structural engineering be better for the community? Evan, what does moving on to the next level mean to you? Audrey, I couldn't be more pleased to have had you moderate the USRC's Making Resilience Cool podcast. You are just the kind of future engineer that has the passion and the excitement around resilience to make our profession thrive. Thank you so very much. And I'm also really glad we saved our interview with Ryan Kirsting for last. He is more than a top-notch engineer. He's a fantastic advocate for resilience, 
both within the engineering profession, but also to the broader community of stakeholders in the built environment. You'll hear from his interview a lot of the themes discussed in the previous episodes, tying them together nicely. Okay, so here we go. Ryan Kirsting is a licensed California structural engineer. I work with Bueller in Sacramento in our headquarters office where I'm an associate principal. I've been there for about 25 years now. And uh, part of my job at Bueller is to be kind of the leader in the codes and standards development and expertise in that area to assist our staff with technical projects that need high-end performance and a better understanding of the seismic performance in particular. I am a former statewide president of the Structural Engineers Association of California. I'm currently the co-chair of the SEAC Policy Committee, and we're focused on legislative activities in California relating not just to practice of structural engineering, but also public policy that pertains to earthquake risk mitigation. Being in Sacramento, that gives me the opportunity to interact with state lawmakers at the Capitol, as well as many of the state agencies that are headquartered here. And we do get broad representation across all the regions from our state organizations. So we have a lot of SEAC members that are involved in public policy advocacy with me on the SEAC Policy Committee. But I'm really thankful to be working with such an expert group of committee members and board members from SEAC up and down the state of California to develop SEAC's ideas and positions relevant to public policy and seismic mitigation. I'm curious. Are there any discussions about innovation and resilience within the SEAC committees? There are a lot of good ideas and good practices that have been developed over the years that we rely on to get good performance from our buildings. But when we think about innovation, we think about what else can we be doing? There are strategies that we can be using as we design our buildings to be more earthquake resilient. We can use things like new technologies such as base isolation and passive dampers and implement in those into our systems and our structures. But we can also look beyond that in terms of what sort of performance we want. Uh, and, and when we talk about resilient performance, we look beyond just safety and we look at things like downtime and downtime is affected by repair cost. And we have innovation in the way we analyze our buildings based on performance-based design, based on higher end risk assessments, to be able to quantify performance no longer just in terms of how safe it is, but also how it's going to be behaving in terms of repair time and downtime and the costs that are associated with that. Yes, recovery time is definitely important. Can you talk a little more about functional recovery? The simplest way I can define the concept of functional recovery is the idea that after an earthquake, we want a building to be ready to be used within a defined length of time, depending on its use or occupancy. Functional recovery time is the new way of measuring how buildings perform in an earthquake. Beyond just being safe enough to get out of, it's how long it's gonna to take to actually recover the function of that building. So some buildings may need a quick functional recovery time, while others could have a longer functional recovery time. The acceptable amount of time to recover will depend on when the services provided by a building are needed to support the overall recovery and resilience of the community it's in. So the concept of functional recovery actually is not brand new. Uh, it is in fact being talked about or has been talked about for at least the last 20 years or more. Some of the earliest work includes papers and research that dates back to early 2000s. And really the progress that we can point to more recently has been made over the past 10 years or so. 
Functional recovery really speaks to the issue of the interdependence of many professions and practices that work together designing truly resilient structures. It's like the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. The building relies on numerous systems like mechanical, electric, plumbing, and others in order to function at its fullest potential. It, it really became readily apparent to us when we did the public workshops and we did stakeholder workshops as part of this FEMA NIST report. And we did those in five different cities. Uh, we started in the Midwest in St. Louis, which is near an actual higher seismic region. We also went to Salt Lake City, Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. But we got very common messages from the public and the other members of the stakeholder groups that participate in these, is that the public needs a lot of services pretty quickly after an event. And so trying to identify where we can align the expectations of the public with what we can provide from the building design and the building maintenance and retrofit perspectives is one of those key challenges because we are all related. And we've learned this also from the pandemic. We know that we are resilient as a as people in general. In an earthquake, we know those ties that relate and connect our, our uh, access to key services such as grocery stores or pharmacies, and of course our schools and our healthcare system. All those ties that connect us together are gonna be stressed even further than they have been in the pandemic. And so it's important now to be thinking about the resilience we have and plan for earthquake scenarios so that we can reinforce those and strengthen those connections to make our communities able to recover and resume somewhat back to normal as soon as possible. It seems like there is still a disconnect between the design teams and the public perceptions of resilience. Yeah, information really is critical. And there is a disconnect right now from what the public understands and what, let's say, design teams are providing. And this webinar series has certainly highlighted that many times, that there is that disconnect. Uh, we've also talked about information needing to be out there about financial resources and other aspects of planning. Functional recovery and community resilience is not just something that designers can solve. It's something that engineers, architects, and all the stakeholders really need to be communicating to the public and to the owners and users of these buildings to help them understand what to expect uh, when the next earthquake hits. How does the idea of functional recovery look when you consider it in terms of the whole state? We really need to be looking at establishing something at the state level in our building codes and that's what we've been working from Seahawks perspective on, is trying to establish those minimums so we can all benefit from the concept of functional recovery and implement it across our communities, not just on isolated cases. We know what needs to be done from the design perspective and even from the codes perspective. We just need to have the authority to start doing it. The new emphasis really is something like community resilience and functional recovery. That would be seismic policy 4.0 or fourth generation. First generation, let's say mid-1900s, dealt with preventing just basic structural collapse, right? Early building codes to some degree. Um, second generation, let's say roughly 20 years later, let's say 50 years ago after San Fernando in 1971, we start using things like risk categories and importance factors. We recognize that we might need to use different rules for different buildings. And it's still safety-based, but we recognize that we might need a little bit of extra factor of safety or protection or higher level of confidence for a certain number of buildings or certain type of buildings. Third generation, we'll say 20 years later, really kind of brought the attention on older buildings, existing buildings, because we knew that there had been a couple of generations now of the codes, and we knew there's things like unreinforced masonry that were vulnerabilities, right? And so in 1986, California passed a bill that led to retrofits of 100 URM buildings, if not thousands of URM buildings. 
Uh, later in the 90s, after Loma Prieta and Northridge, we improved our codes to address some of the issues that we noticed in those. We talked about steel mullet frames. We talked about some of the tilt-ups. Uh, but we also improved how we approach this on existing buildings and develop local programs for the soft story wood buildings, for example, uh, and some of the non-ductile concrete conversations we're having. So that'd be third generation. If I may, that during the third generation, what was really important was the development of performance-based earthquake engineering. So now, thankfully, after 20 years of investment in performance-based design and, and analysis, we can do things beyond just safety. We can look at recovery time. We can look at the cost of the damage that is being done by these earthquakes. So this fourth generation of seismic policy is, is relying on the research we've done on performance-based design, and it allows us to look at things beyond safety and take it to the next level of recovery. This is what I like to hear. Progress. It's good to know that efforts are being made towards next level recovery. But tell me, what does next level recovery actually entail? Uh, it means that we're looking at services that define our communities and allow them to recover in a reasonable time. What are those services? Well, that's a conversation we'll still need to have, but it's not just the hospitals and fire stations that our current building code addresses as essential. If we can focus on recovery, I really believe that's the next generation of our building codes and our seismic policy. That's so clear. We make changes to the code after different kinds of earthquakes, but it's fascinating to see how each quake reveals new vulnerabilities, and each one forces us to adapt and add to the code after it strikes. We need to keep in mind that the codes are just the baseline. To ensure that a building can withstand future disasters, we need to go beyond the code. As we've talked about in many different conversations, we know from the pandemic that there's other essential services out there that the building code ought to be looking at. We just need to have a way and a mechanism to get that concept of recovery into our building codes as part of this fourth generation or seismic policy 2.0. Interesting. So the pandemic was not unlike an earthquake in revealing shortfalls of policy around resilience. What does this mean for the future of the structural engineering community itself? How are we going to have to learn to adapt? Obviously, at the heart of it, it's we start to measure our performance, not just in terms of safety, but in terms of how quickly we can return to function. So the concept of functional recovery is something we will adapt to. And we're going to talk about that for all sorts of occupancies, whether it's housing, whether it's commercial offices, whether it's retail spaces like grocery stores, schools, whatever it may be. We're going to look at it from a community services perspective and say, we need these sorts of services in this amount of time. We probably don't need to change that much, but we would like to be able to describe what the code achieves in terms of their expected recovery time. Instead of just calling them, let's just say risk category two, we'd like to be able to say these are functional recovery category buildings that would be recoverable uh, for basic services in X number of days, weeks, hours, years, maybe, I guess, in some cases. Wow. Having the functional recovery time built into the resilience rating system would definitely be beneficial in giving building owners the whole picture. We should also be adapting to look at how we prioritize our retrofits. Uh, we focused a lot on what we've considered vulnerable buildings, and we've tried our best to make basic safety-based improvements to their buildings. But we may want to look at what services are being occupied by those buildings to help know what target we should have for their performance. Some buildings based on those services may need to be targeted for quicker recovery. Other buildings in terms of basic safety uh, is maybe the minimum. 
and that may give us a longer term recovery, but we maybe can accommodate that recovery based on the services that are there. Would this mean that an engineer would need to work more closely with clients to make sure they understand the performance they're getting? I think there's a great opportunity for structural engineers to be more engaged on the projects they work on, to help the owners and the clients understand the performance they're getting, and to help them understand what could be done to get better performance. Until there's some sort of code requirement to get recovery-based performance, it has to be a conversation that the engineer brings forward. With that said, we do know there are many local jurisdictions that are talking about this already. So it may not be too far in the future for a local jurisdiction to ask of a certain type of building to have a better recovery time, for example. We also know that certain state agencies, when they look at their state office buildings, whether they're looking at the inventory of existing buildings or considering programs for new buildings, they're looking at long-term performance. And it's important for structural engineers to help these clients and these owners understand when they're thinking of things like sustainability and environmental responsibility, that we should also be thinking about not just sustainability in terms of the initial use of materials, but also the resilience of these buildings in terms of the long-term performance. Um, There may be a small investment of additional materials up front, but the long-term payback is many fold over. And so it's important for engineers to have the information (laughs) that they need to convey this to the project teams, but it's also an opportunity for the structural engineers to take a lead role in helping the owners and the builders really build for what our community needs. What other roles does a structural engineer play? How can we engineers join the conversation? So the structural engineer has a great opportunity on project teams to communicate and provide information about uh, functional recovery and better performance. But we also have an opportunity to help our government agencies, our jurisdictions, our building officials, our state and local agencies understand that they could be asking for more than just what the code minimum is providing. Where else should we look when it comes to moving recovery onto the next level? So let's talk about the financial aspects about the fourth generation seismic policy for a minute. We now know, as we've been talking about in these webinars, that we can quantify you know, performance in terms of repair cost, downtime, the financial aspects of the building, not just the safety aspects. And I think it really is important for our lenders, for our insurers to to reward buildings that go above and beyond safety. We know that going above and beyond safety will mitigate and minimize financial losses. And whether it's through incentives, uh, through uh, promotional, you know, lending programs, or whether it's through discounts when it comes to insurance side of things, we really ought to recognize that those buildings and those owners have made the investment and should be rewarded for doing better and for protecting that investment and not putting the risk on the financial institutions, quite honestly. Uh, So I think, you know, financially, I think there's that partnership there that we need to be exploring still of recognizing how do we communicate to those financial institutions uh, to let them know that this building is going to perform better from that perspective. It will definitely be important for me to keep those financial aspects of the conversation in mind when I'm working on new projects. That's something I hadn't considered before beginning this podcast. Any other factors I should keep in mind? From the private sector side, from the developer side, I have two things, and these are just off the top of my head. One, don't fall into the trap of thinking of bottom line, first dollar cost of projects. The concepts we're talking about for new buildings in particular are not that expensive. 
we've shown affordable housing projects in downtown San Francisco can be built for higher seismic performance for zero increase in, in construction cost. We've shown how projects uh, throughout the West Coast for schools, for other institutional facilities can be done for higher seismic performance for 1% or less increase in construction cost. Don't fall into the trap of thinking this higher performance comes with a big price tag. I think your first dollar cost will not change much at all. So you start to think about long-term, a return on that investment. A very, very small investment will return many times over. You know, we, we hear different numbers in different reports, let's just say in, in rough order magnitude, five to 10 times back, right, on your return on investment. So from the private sector, really think about that and don't fall into the trap that this is gonna be much more expensive because it's not. It doesn't take much, it just takes a dedicated effort and a willingness to do it. Evan, Ryan had great insight from his experiences as a licensed structural engineer and a committee member of SEOC on the topic of next level recovery. He gave us the inside scoop of what it is, how we can achieve it, and the process of getting there. I agree, Audrey. Ryan Kirsting is precisely the type of engineering professional that the industry needs to make resilience a reality. He has the technical expertise to bring credibility and resilient science to the way we design buildings of the future. He's very active in the profession, promoting the values of building a resilience-based engineering practice. And he's a strong and articulate advocate for resilience to the broader community. So this is it, isn't it, Evan? We've come such a long way and I've learned so much in hosting Making Resilience Cool. Considered my eyes and ears opened. I feel like my ability to add value and perspectives to projects wherever I might work has been greatly expanded. As a structural engineer yourself, were all of these subjects of interest to you right out of school? I'm wondering what inspired you to create the Resilience Advantage series and interview people with such a broad spectrum of knowledge. Well, Audrey, that in itself is an interesting question, with answers that I think are a little too complex to include in closing comments. Why don't we add one more episode to the series, and I can tell you the story of how the USRC came to be, and what it has evolved into in recent years, and what opened the conversation that led to creating the Resilience Advantage. That sounds amazing. What a great way to cap off the series. I'm looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Ryan Kirsting and functional recovery, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. It has been a unique pleasure hosting this podcast and learning so much from engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. I thought this would be our final episode. That was the plan at least. But as we've learned, when it comes to resilience, plans evolve. So next episode, I'll finally have the opportunity to interview Evan Reese himself about the founding of the USRC, the progress it has made, and how he sees it evolving in the future. And also hear the story of the origins of the Resilience Advantage series. Don't miss it!